0: We want to welcome our guest, David McCloskey.
1: Thanks for coming on. Hey guys, thanks for All right, great to be here. I'm prepared. Nice. This is going to be a good interview already. We can tell. (laughs)
2: All right, we are definitely ready.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, David, your your debut novel, Damascus Station, has been widely praised from everyone to General David Petraeus and Leon Panetta to journalists like David Ignatius, as well as fellow authors. Well. David's author as well, but as well as favorite fellow <laughs> authors like Al-Makatsu and Jack Carr. Yep. For those out there who have not read it yet, can you give us a short briefing on what they can
2: expect?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So first up, guys, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, cool to it. be here. Um, so the the book is um, it's a spy novel. Uh, it is uh, set in the kind of early years of the Syrian civil war. So think of you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, first few years, Um, although I'm not specific in the book and kind of don't stick to chronology. Um, It is about a CIA case officer named Sam Joseph uh, and his Syrian recruit, Mariam, who break one of the very kind of cardinal rules of the trade and fall into this forbidden relationship. Um, They go into Damascus to hunt down the, the killer of another CIA case officer and uh, in the course of that kind of process, come into conflict and tension and passion about their own relationship um, and, and really come face to face with a, a pretty brutal pair of Syrian uh, brothers who are guarding this very kind of dark secret at the heart of the, of the Syrian regime. So um, it's really a book about obviously espionage, um, but I also think it's a book about love um, and hopefully you know what it means to be human in the middle of a very inhuman conflict. <laughs> Um, so that's kind of the book in a nutshell.
0: Yep. Awesome. Well, Damascus Station, in my opinion, is a towering achievement for a debut novel. I mean, it's, yeah, sure. it's really a hell of a <laughs> hell of a entry into the uh, industry. Um, frankly, I was annoyed at myself for taking so long to get around to it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that struck me is how much of an emotional impact you baked into the story. And when you were an analyst, I I suppose one of the job requirements was providing dispassionate, sober analysis. As a a, a fiction writer, your your objectives are different. Was making this transition a difficult process, or had those emotions sort of been
3: simmering beneath the surface in your former uh, job? I think it was probably both of those things, Mm. to be honest. I mean, you know, you're right that the kind of writing that you're doing at the CIA and the kind of writing that I was doing as a consultant, um, afterward, you know, it's it's pretty, it's analytic. It's just passionate. It's, it's not emotional at all. It's the opposite of it. Right. And, and sort of by design. Um, and so it was definitely, and I don't have any creative writing background. I, you know, I've literally never, I've never taken a creative writing class. I'd never studied it. I just, had always wanted to give it a try and so I think that transition was you know it, it's it it was a it was a very different craft right in a lot of ways yeah. and so that was that was a jump um you know but the second thing you know that you mentioned is is real too which was I worked on Syria at the CIA and I lived there and and um you know I, I had a lot of I think probably under the surface emotion, or maybe even not under the surface, just real emotion about the war and 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 what that was like for people who lived there. Um and I, I think a lot of the book came out of a desire to process that and to kind of work through it after I left the CIA. And so, you know, the first draft of this book, which was terrible, um, was written <laughs> well, like legitimately, it was it was awful. I still have a printout uh, of it in my my closet that uh, yourself I, at, I look at sometimes if, you know, I want to make sure I bring my self-esteem down a notch because it was really, <laughs> it was really, really bad. Um, but I kind of, it kind of, the, the whole thing came out of this desire to kind of work through some aspects of the conflict and, and how I had experienced it and how others had experienced it. And so it was really, you know, a lot of the characters were born out of that. I literally just sat down for a summer and it was the summer of 2014. Huh. And for a whole bunch of reasons, I was in between jobs and I was just leaving the agency and I had time. And so I just started, I spent eight hours a day writing. And uh, it was kind of an experience for me, to be honest. Like I, I just, I wanted to see what it felt like. And would I enjoy writing? What would come out? You know, I, I didn't really know. And I just sat down and wrote every day and I did character sketches and I did you know stories that I had heard or things I had experienced, and I, it was really kind of a, almost a a journal of <laughs> of a lot of the war in my time working at the CIA. Yeah. And and there was no plot, and you know it was like I said really bad. But the book, I think the emotional like the the emotional guts of the book came out of that experience. Then it got put aside, and I came back to it later. Hmm. You know, it did important things like actually give it structure and and some kind of plot but um it, it was it was really a desire i think to work through a lot of what i'd see, what i'd seen and experienced when i was at Seattle.
0: so quick quick follow-up do you keep that um original copy in your closet to humble you or does your wife abby keep that original copy in your closet to humble you
3: no i, I keep i keep it there i um so i have i have like a stack in my closet of all of the terrible Uh, you know, I've got, I've got that, that draft of the book, which is awful. I've got the first draft of Damascus of what became Damascus station, like five years later, which is also bad. I have the first, uh, 200 pages of the book, which my editor, uh, at the time he hadn't bought the book, but he like marked a whole bunch of stuff up and literally mailed me the first 200 pages of the book with, with comments in the margins that like, I couldn't even say out loud and polite company about things that didn't work there and that he hated you know so I kind of I keep all that stuff because I I really um I love to write and it gives me a ton of energy but I also I don't know I'm pretty cognizant that I'm relatively new to the craft right I haven't been doing it for that long and so I, I I feel like it's really helpful to be able to go back and look at comments that I've received or like kind of figure out you know, what worked and what didn't on what I'd done before and, and retain that stuff. Cause I am trying to get better at it every day. Yeah. Why
1: well, I, I can imagine you were running into this. So my background is medicine. And so when I, when I'm writing fiction based on that particular subject matter um, it's really easy for me to, to think that, that m- my knowledge is common knowledge or, even when yeah. I try to suppress some of it down to a level of somebody who's not involved in that, sometimes I'm still kind of shooting over their heads. Um, where did you find yourself writing uh, this debut in terms of the balance between information for authenticity uh, without overwhelming the audience to where they even stop turning the pages?
3: Yeah. I mean, I felt, I think if, I think if I showed you my first draft, you would say, "Hey, there's pieces of this that feel like an information dump mm-hmm. um, from somebody who is probably using that a little bit as like a crutch because they don't—they're not confident enough in in the the characters or in sort of the the craft of just writing fiction to be able to step away from that and to just." Um, I, I think write without a whole bunch of clunky stuff in there that kind of bogs the reader down um, and I think that's my tendency right and I think especially in early drafts I probably overwhelm my poor wife who's my and wonderful wife who's my you know first reader on everything with hmm. CIA jargon and you know um, tradecraft manual and all this kind of stuff <laughs> that I I try to anchor the books in because I do think that authenticity is fun and interesting, and 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 it right it, you know in its appropriate sort of place and quantity adds really interesting um, dimensions to my to my work. But I, I kind of lean too much on that upfront, and so I think you know directly answer your question. The, the way that I get around it is or or, or get through it, I guess is kind of in the editing editing process and having a, a bunch of people read the book who don't have any background in this. And frankly, probably don't even read a lot of spy fiction. You know, when I wrote um, Damascus Station, a lot of my beta readers were people who, they just, they read, but they don't read a lot in the genre. And yeah. they would circle stuff or say, hey, I don't know what this is. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. it's confusing, you know. And i will kind of be like, okay, why well, I can... I can back it off by fifty percent and cut down on jargon and acronyms and stuff like that, and, and still retain a lot of authenticity, but not not have it get in the way of the story. Right. Um, and, and so I think having readers um, has been has been the way that I've gotten around that because honestly, I feel like I have a blind spot for it. You know, in my own yeah. my own editing process, I kind of need others to help help me pinpoint the places where it's just it's too much. Yep, sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and it's unfortunate because sometimes you're like hey this is a really like awesome detail yeah, and if you guys like, only how knew how good like this slowing, is <laughs> it's slowing things down it's making it hard to get lost in the story because you get pulled out of the story and you think well why is this stupid acronym here why can't right. we just keep moving it? you know
0: right i'm just i'm just used to everything being above my head so i just read through it <laughs>
3: Okay. You look for pictures.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look for the pictures. Well, no, as someone with an analytical background, I, I imagine if you at least began this process as, as a plotter versus a pantser. Is that a correct assessment? Um, and yeah. if so, did you at all change that when you
3: started to put your fingers to the keys? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you'd be right. I mean, I started very much with like, okay. And this was, this was my stupid assumption on, you know, day, day zero of saying, Hey, I'm actually going to like take my hundred thousand. So, well, you know, I'll back that up. When I started writing in 2014, it was totally a pantser exercise. It was just like, I'm just going to write things. And, you know, and and I think where that got me was a hundred and so thousand words of just, you know, like wandering me, you know, just (laughs) no plot, no one would ever want it. When I came back to it in 2019, I think I kind of overcorrected in the other direction, and I was mm-hmm. coming off of five years of management consulting work, which is highly structured, and it's like, okay, well, here's what PowerPoint deck is going to look like. This here's the table of contents. Yeah, boom, boom, boom. boom yeah. and kind of thought that, <laughs> kind of thought that the book would would just. Be, like would would be fine with that you know yeah, like that yeah. I could I'll get there by the the a you know and it's just like I realized after like two weeks it's, it's like that's just not at all how it's gonna work for me and so I think I've gotten somewhere in the middle now where on my the book that I'm working on now honestly I, I have a one pager on the plot and I have kind of like a chapter beat sheet that i've worked out that's like here's how i go from a to z but it's pretty fluid and it's not that long and i understand that you know every day or every week it's going to change and so i kind of let i've gotten a little bit more back to the pantsing side of things and realizing that like the characters are going to do what they're going to do and i i try to drive toward a, a big climactic scene which is typically I see an image in my head when I start the process or pretty close to the start of the process and I want to get there. Um, and then I think about how do I, how do I get there and, right. and, and try to drive it in that direction. But other than that, it's pretty, it's pretty fluid.
1: Well, placing highly intelligent, often young people in dangerous situations that call for cooperation between the sexes, it's kind of like, it's almost impossible for them to not fall into some physical kind of relationship I imagine with some frequency, especially in some of the, the locations that they're, they're placed in. So, um, do let's say not for you directly, but do you know of some of these couplings that maybe got overlooked or kind of like, kind of pushed, you know, into the weeds a little bit from the higher ups in today's world, because what they were doing was critical and they kind of like turned a little bit of a blind eye. Uh, do you think this is, this
3: still goes on in today's environment in the real world? Do you mean like uh, between, so I'd say there's two v- variations of this, right? Yeah. One is CIA officers who are hooking up with each other. I, th- I think, I think CIA officers hooking up with each other or or maybe their target. The asset is not. That's, that's like super, I mean, the reason I went with that was because I think that the sort of potential energy of all of the intimacy and emotion of an actual sort of, cia officer to asset relationship yeah. plus romantic tension and energy you're just working with a lot there yeah. as, an, as an author and, and there's a lot like you can take that a lot of different directions and so i, I was really attracted to that mm. um it's 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 super rare i mean it, it does happen it has happened in the past and i know of examples of it but you know it's basically like you're going to be fired if that happens yeah. um and so it's not it's not as common as I think we might suspect. Given right. that it is used in spy fiction and right, right, you know, a bunch of different a bunch of different cases, um, but it's it's super rare. Now, CIA officers that's a totally different thing, um, and that's pretty common because it's pretty hard, especially when you're talking about operations officers, the case officers. Like yeah. that job is a it's a tough job it's more of a life than a job and it's really hard for people outside to understand the kind of stress that they're dealing with and yeah uh, and, and so there's a tendency for them to sort of or there can be a tendency for them to sort of find each other through that right through that stress um so that's that's pretty common but the asset stuff not not really as much okay well, perhaps
0: Mike's question isn't the best segue for my question, but, um, g- given your experience, is any of domestic Say um, station autobiographical
3: or, uh, or is it based on people that you knew or worked with? It's all, it's almost all based on people that I knew, uh, and, and sort of composites of, of people that I knew. Um, you know, I, I honestly think. Like I, I, I got this question a number of times, like, Hey, are you, how much of you is Sam and vice versa? Yeah. You know, the protagonist. And I, I just really think not, not a whole lot. I actually think the character and he's kind of a composite of a couple case officers that I knew pretty well. Um, the Syrians are composites of Syrians that I analyzed or knew, you know, so it's kind of, it's more of that. I think the character, that, the character that I felt like was, was, probably some version of my alter ego was the the chief of station in Damascus Proctor, who's this extremely, you know, sort of foul mouth. She's like five feet tall with, you know, dark curly hair. I love she's, Proctor. I love Proctor. She's a great, she's a great character. Never when, sweats. I was, when I was right. Yeah. Really weird dresser, weird food choices, you know, can handle a tremendous amount of liquor without being affected. Um, and when I was writing her, I mean, I don't think I'm her, but I think she's a little bit of my alter ego of like completely, you know, removed from filters, societal morals and filters. Yeah. Like, you know, there's probably a little bit of Proctor in, in all of us and certainly in me. So she's the she's the she's the character that's probably closest to my my heart. But the others are all sort of mixtures of agency people that I knew. Hmm. Will there be anybody that goes calls you up and says, damn it. You know, like a little too close to home? <laughs> you know, I've, um, I think it's possible. I mean, I, I thought that when I was writing, there were a couple characters where I'm like, you know, this is like really pretty close to somebody that I worked with. Uh, I haven't gotten those calls and I've kind of been treating that like a very highly classified state secret as to like who the composites actually are drawn from um we'll wait for the netflix series come out wait, yeah <laughs> the series uh but i have i have not been i have not been found out by former colleagues yet all right. I mean, all right i've like blended the composites enough that they can't like it's not one-to-one you know well, you're still breathing so there's evidence <laughs> and I, i'm still alive exactly some of the some of the people I crossed, like I, am genuinely terrified of. So I, <laughs> I think I'm. It's it's okay. I, I'm I'm in the clear now. It's been like five. Months. I have children, <laughs> damn it. Um yeah,
1: exactly. So there are scenes which, to a relief, is not autobiographical. For instance, but, and not just in Damascus Station, um, but in spy novels in general, it, torture is a reality of the storylines. Uh, so. With that in mind, for our audience, can you comment on real-world intelligence agents what they face in the in that realm overseas? Is this is there that risk of torture as frequent as fiction writers would like us to believe?
3: No way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, look, it it the real answer is it it obviously does depend on the country and the situation, right? Yeah. But um, and without giving any anything away i think in in damascus station the scenarios or the scenario that i kind of describe or hint at mm. is, is is pretty improbable i mean especially of an american you know and in, in a place like syria I, I think that you're just the 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 situations that i described are realistic in the sense that that's what it would what it would be like or feel like to be in a, an interrogation in syria yeah but i think an american getting kind of drawn into that in that way not especially one with the diplomatic passport you know that yeah. because that's kind of the that, that that is also an important distinction i mean there have been journalists who have disappeared there if you're not under you know, if you don't have diplomatic protection, it really is kind of a different story in some respects. But especially in the early years of the war, it's kind of hard for me to imagine that scenario really happening with someone with a with a black diplomatic passport. Now that said, you know, I mean, it was a chaotic time. It's a country that's sort of coming apart at the seams, and I really needed, from a plot standpoint, something that would something that would drive the CIA to um, or the White House to approve a finding that would allow us to kill, you know, or go after someone who, would, you know, was believed to be responsible for that. Right. And that's a pretty serious thing. You know, I mean, in a lot of spy fiction, the idea of the American government going out and killing somebody is sort of glossed over. And, and in reality, it's a very complicated uh, and bureaucratic process to get that done. Yeah, and there has to be real justification for it from an intelligence standpoint and so you know i kind of i I wanted some some reality to kind of come into the picture there even if there were just shades of it and i felt like i couldn't quite couldn't quite get there unless something really bad happened to my cia officer right um which is what i had happen now if if it's
0: kind of a playing out that question if it's a knock if it's a non-official cover person it's kind of a different set of rules that's a
3: different story yeah that's a different story that's a different story um because they're not there on a black black passport um and that's why it set up kind of you know i think it's even too much in the first chapter of the book like there's some decisions made by the cia officers that make real operational sense given their understanding of the situation at the time but that have real kind of ramifications for the book because sam is there under Commercial cover, you know, which means he's literally there on a tourist passport, um, right. and and his colleague is not, and right. they rightly think that you know he'll be treated very differently. Right. Um, you know, if the Syrians believe that he's conducting some kind of operational act, right, uh, he would have no real protection, whereas his colleague would, and that, that's that's real thing. Right. Eef. Well, <clears throat> obviously, the world's technological advance. This is more of a, a
0: question about. Less about the book than just about your experience and the intelligence yes. world as a, as a whole. The world's technological advances have affected intelligence work. And I imagine it's a mixed bag of blessings and curses. Um, do you think there's an over reliance on technology by either the US, our allies, or our adversaries? And has tech fundamentally changed
3: human or human intelligence? Yeah, I think it fundamentally has changed it. I mean, um... You know, if you think about advances in things like um, biometrics, the availability and and sort of cost of cameras, um, if you think about the amount of data that your phone spews off yeah. as you walk around, and and the sort of again like cameras, the availability and the cost reductions, and just pretty cheap sensors. Um, the the risk has kind of become that like, you know, in, in my in my book, I have a lot of scenes where the where my CA officers are conducting what are called surveillance detection routes, you know, so they're they're moving in a pretty elaborate pre-planned pattern that is designed to look um as though it fits with their pattern of life, but in fact it allows them to assess if they're under surveillance on their way to meet an asset. And, you know, it's sort of um, it was sort of uh commonly understood in the in the trade that like you would if you did that and you met the asset and you got home and nothing bad had happened, you were you were pretty much in the clear. You know, um that the, the surveillance teams that might be watching you or it's gonna be happening more or less in real time. And if you have you know, if you get there, you have the meeting and you get home, like. You've, you've executed the operational act effectively. And now the problem is that uh, there's so much data that's available and out there and it's not being deleted um, that a, a hostile service could sort of pull threads post facto to understand if you're in the same position as somebody or at the same location or on the same route as somebody that you shouldn't be. You know, yeah. and, and so it, it really has fundamentally changed the game, um, tech has. And I, I think that it's, I don't think it's done anything to diminish the real legitimate value of human and of quality human sources, but it is changing the way that I think we go about um, recruiting them and running them. That's sure. very different now.
1: Hmm. Well, let's step out of your book for one second. Um, and into your career. So, when you started out to write your first novel, did you actually have any specific goals in mind with regard to becoming a full-time author or writing on the side? Or you kind of hinted at some of this. So, what, what? So, in 2019, what were your objectives versus when you were just kind of, you know, reliving some of your experiences in 2014 when you first started writing?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, in, in 2019, I um, I took seven months off of work. I was still doing, I, I've been doing consulting full time up until that point, And I had every intention of going back and there are a whole bunch of kind of family related reasons why I wanted to take a step back and just take some time and spend more time with the kids, get in better shape, like just kind of unplug from the, the grind of, of management consulting uh, yeah. for a bit. And um, I, I knew pretty quickly that I would need some kind of project in that Time to kind of keep me structured and intellectually engaged, and you know, I had that horrible manuscript sitting on the shelf, (laughs) and I was like, "Well, okay, let, let me, let me see if over the course of six, seven months, I can take this from, you know, bad manuscript to something that I could actually like try to get published."
2: Yeah, and
3: I think when I started, I thought that I would actually be able to just take pieces of that take it off the shelf and like make it better, you know, make it 20% better and it quickly became apparent that I'd have to throw it away and just start over. Hmm. And that's what I did. And so the goal became, can I finish the first or maybe the second, get to a reader's draft of the book by the time that, that seven months was done. And the goal was always to at least get it to a point where I could like send it to agents Hmm. and, try to get the commercial, like get a commercial process running when I went back to, to consulting. Um, And I thought, you know, look, if I get into this and it's a couple months in and it's like, Hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not enjoying it. And I don't feel like there's flow around it. Well, then I'll just back, you know, whatever, I'll just back off and enjoy the rest of my time and and go back to work. Um, But I realized pretty quickly that I really loved to sit down and write. Hmm. and as and I kind of knew this from the time in 2014 but it was like oh man I, I just I love this like I can sit down and, and you know it'll be eight to four and it just feels like there's no like no time has passed you know it's just I'm just totally in the flow yeah. um, and I loved it and so it kind of became I think a more obsessive process over time to try to figure out if Hey, would someone pay me for this? You know, like, right, like right, right. So we get money for doing this. Cause that would be pretty cool. Um, and so I, you know, I've really kind of been on that journey ever since to try to figure out how to, how to make that work. Well, there's a huge buzz going on with your
1: book now and with Sean and I reading it, it's obvious why, and, you know, some of this early success, and we'll, we'll talk about a couple of things that are coming up for you that are kind of a big deal has this changed your mindset in terms of where you want to take this I mean this at first it maybe was like let's see if it works and now you're like yeah. now what do I do because it looks like it's really working
3: yeah I mean i I'll tell you though you know it's it's a uh, anyone who goes into writing fiction to make money has got to be totally insane <laughs> it's just not that's so true, uh, so, true. So, true. Oh. Like, so true like I, I I don't know I mean I'm speaking a little bit out of school here on the industry. It just, it's not like, it, it's pretty, it is It is very hard, I think, to get the numbers to work.
1: Sure. You got to be top and three, like, top five. I mean, that's true. Really yeah, hard. I
3: mean, I mean, you know, it's probably like any other creative sort of, you know, endeavor where like, you've got the top 5% of people who are making 95% of the money. You know, yeah. I, I actually, I've come to the conclusion that at McKinsey, the consulting firm I was at, you know, there's always 80, 20 rule of, so you'd think in fiction, you know, is it the top yeah. 20% of people making 80% of the money? I think it's more skewed, you yeah, know? I in, think in so fiction. too. I, I really do. I mean, I think there's I think there's a whole bunch of people, uh, you know, just out there writing because they enjoy it and they're just making nothing. And there's another big crew of people who are probably just barely scraping by. Yep. It's tough business. Um, And so I think I'm still trying to figure out what it, what it could look like to do this full time. I mean, basically where I'm at right now is I, I knew... I left the consulting job last summer because I knew two things. One is I knew I wouldn't be able to write another book doing that full time. It, yeah. it was too crazy of a, of a lifestyle to get that to you not know, really be able to focus creatively in another book. And, and two, and maybe more importantly, like, I would not be, have been able to promote Damascus station the way that I wanted to, if I had stayed in that, in that job. And so right. I, I laughed yeah. and thought, okay, I am going to get another book done. I'm going to promote the hell out of Damascus station yeah, and I'm going to see where, where I am around the summer and then kind of go from there. But I'm definitely trying to make this work. Um, but seeing that it's just, you know, it's a tough business. Um, and, and, you know, even if you, even if you're doing, you know, I feel like the book has been well-received and like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get it out there as much as possible, but it's just, yeah, it's a, it's it's a tough business. That's the reality. It is, and
0: it's it's, it's random in many ways. I mean, you yeah. know, it, it's what makes what makes a one book a smash hit, and another one a moderate hit, another one a, a failure is not. In fact, it's. I, w- I would say it's not. Not only is it not always the writing; it's not usually the writing. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> something else. <laughs> it's, it's these weird factors, and we we see it from a kind of a unique perspective on the show because we've had some books that. We've read that we're like, how is this not the book of the year? How is this not right. the everybody has on their shelves? And we've read others that are on everybody's shelves. We're like, good book, but I mean, we got these I mean, other it's, ones it's, over it's, here. Yeah. And and again, I mean, like we we haven't had, and I'm not just saying this. We haven't had a, a book on our show that like I thought was a bad book. Nothing like that. I, I'm really talking about the books that we've read peripheral to the show, you know, to kind of like decide you know who our next guest was and something but it, it is it is such a random thing and, and but you said something that was important extremely vital and that's if if you're doing this for any other reason then you want to tell a story yeah that you have a tell story and you want to tell a story then you're in for a, a rough rough ride no matter what you were,
3: you were in the wrong you were in the wrong business like yeah i, I mean I have a lot of, I have a lot of conversations with former agency folks who are, who are, you know, writing a lot of people have really interesting stories to tell. And, you know, I I mean, every single one of these conversations I have, I say, look, like at the end of the day, you have to really love writing. Like that has to, the motivating factor has got to be the inputs and not the outputs. If it's the outputs, you are, you are going to be just toasted, you know, by this, by this business. And like, Unless you're in the top, unless you get super lucky, you're in the top 1%, whatever it is. Like, you've got to love sitting down every day. You got to wake up and say, I'm super excited to put, you know, 2,500 words down on paper today, even if they suck, because I'm just going to enjoy doing it or, you know, whatever. Or, or you're going to torture yourself because you just feel like this is the way you're wired and there's no other way.
1: Well, um, the hourly rate sucks for writers, that's for sure. Like,
3: the <laughs> hourly rate is really bad. Like, the hourly rate, like, you should go to McDonald's. <laughs> you know, I mean, really Home shook.
1: Depot looks pretty good. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> um, if you're, I mean, I actually remember once trying to do the hourly rate calculation on Damascus Station, and it was super depressed. I start crying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super yeah. depressed. i imagine. <laughs> well, I want to get serious for
0: just a second. Um, you you had a front row seat to uh, Russia's involvement in Syria. If you were analyzing Syria, you knew all about the Russian involvement. Um, yeah. Have there been elements of deja vu as you observe the events in Ukraine, or the circumstances just so
3: different that it really doesn't apply? Um, I, you know, I think it's, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, for a long time after I left uh, the agency and, and before I started writing Damascus Station, I was pretty unplugged from what was going on, honestly, in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the wider world, I was doing a lot of consulting work on like logistics and e-commerce women and stuff like that, which just kind of like, I, I just didn't pay a lot of attention to it. When I came back to Damascus Station, I started to pay a lot more attention to it. And as I've been promoting the book, I've been pretty shocked by how a subset of commentators slash sort of pro-Russian propagandists and trolls have kind of taken over, or, or not taken over, but have, have created a lot of energy behind making Syria, and this is prior to Ukraine, making mm-hmm. Syria a sort of theater in Russia's information war against
2: us. Mm-hmm.
3: And I, I was struck, you know, in October, November, December, just kind of having conversations about the book. And how effective that really was at creating or sort of, um, you know, accelerating or kind of accentuating narratives around the true nature of the opposition in Syria, what Russia was doing, how the Assad regime was sort of this, you know, poor, misunderstood government that was beset by jihadis and blah, 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 like the russians and and their sort of allies here in the west are, were pretty effective i think at creating that narrative and it's been interesting to see the same dynamics at play in ukraine um yeah. and a lot of the same people who have been carrying i mean look obviously carrying water for putin over yeah. syria have been doing the same thing in ukraine right and so i you know I've read a lot on Russia over the past year because my my the book I'm working on now is Russia focused, but I'm not like I'm not in any way an expert on it. So I wouldn't be able to sort of pontificate on Ukraine or, you know, <sighs> what it means to Russia or what Putin's really up to. I mean, I have thoughts, but they're not, you know, I'll leave that to others. But it's been really interesting to see the information war take on the same contours. And, you know, I I really think. Syria is obviously now somewhat old news and, yeah. you know, the, the war there has been going on for a long time and the conflict's pretty frozen, but it was interesting to even see how furiously the Russians and their allies kind of fought for control over the history. Even after the most of the fighting had stopped, you know, mm. there, there was this tremendous effort to kind of win the historiography of the war. Yeah. Uh, which was really astounding to me. Um, and and the Russians are very good at it. They're very good at information warfare. I mean, they've, they've been struggling, obviously, in Ukraine, in the West. Um, but, you know, in, in Syria, they were they were damn good. And they had a whole bunch of people here who were able to, you know, create a narrative where Syrian aid workers were jihadis and the whole opposition was always al-Qaeda and you know you just kind of it's easier to kind of push things out and say okay well the Russians were probably justified in what they did um, which was straight up leveling cities and indiscriminate bombing of civilians all this kind of horrible stuff so yeah you see the same themes at play
0: I do think you're selling yourself short though because I I, there's a Twitter user with 47 followers that is a Ukraine expert and um, Russian (laughs) Um, and actually, yeah. there's
3: probably a thousand of those. Huh? That's right. I, I've graduated, you know, uh, a year ago, I was an epidemiologist. And right now, now I'm just I just all Ukraine all the time. Right. I know everything about it. Yeah, yeah. it's, um, it's it, the bar is low. The bar is low. Yes,
1: it is. <laughs> and it's frustrating to read that stuff sometimes. All right, well, let's talk about something really cool. Yeah. You are a finalist for the 2022 ITW Best at First Novel Award. Oh, that was
3: exciting.
1: So, how did you find out, and how did it feel? Had you, did you did did you have a sense that the book had some legs to maybe get to that point, or was this just
3: like you know a complete sledgehammer over the head? Um, I honestly, I honestly had no idea. I, you know, I, the way I found out was I was traveling. I guess it was it was maybe a week or so ago that it got, that it got announced. I think uh-huh. um, I was on a flight from Dallas where I live to DC to have some book conversations. And when I landed and opened up my email, I had a note from a friend of mine, also an author named uh, James uh, Um And, and he wrote, Hey, congrats on the nomination. And he like copied like literally just best first novel you know, David McCloskey, Alaska Station, and I honestly had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> um, That's the and, best uh, because, because the um, the ITW emails go into have gone into my promotions folder in oh. Gmail, <laughs> and so I didn't have it. I didn't have it in, Xbox. and so I was like, at first I was like, it doesn't. I mean, James, I don't like this. Seems like a really cruel prank. It's yeah. Even, <laughs> um and uh and but I, and then i googled a few things just to try to figure out like what it was i didn't find anything and so i sent him a note back i was like james i'm sorry like what what are you talking about like what and he and and he so then he sends back you know with the thing and with with the actual award and then i went i realized it got stuck in my promotions folder and i saw the email so that's how I found out. Um, Surprise. But, uh, but I was, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm super humbled and excited by it. And uh, I mean, I had, I had no idea that it would, you know, be in any kind of running for any award. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm really grateful and, and really humbled that it's having the, you know, hopefully having the impact that, that it is. It's really exciting.
1: Well, we wish you the best on that one for sure.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, you have made it to the end of the, normal portion the regular portion i guess i should mm-hmm. say of our of our interview now's the time to take a drink to toast to you and also in your promotions folder there's all sorts of
3: prescription deals that you should check out <laughs> you know it was funny to go in there because I, I realized i might have i might have missed it because I, I i don't know what happened normally they go into my normal folder but there's a lot of weird stuff in there so <laughs> yeah i yeah. dredged that out yeah.
1: medical prescriptions that you might want to like maybe toss to the side for now yeah
0: Well, my first lightning round question, and as you know, the lightning round is off the top of your head sort of answers. You don't have to think before you speak like your mom always made you when you were a child. Um, But my first question involves this. At the top of your book, the best spy novel I have ever read, General David Petraeus. So I'm assuming that book number two will not include a blurb from David Petraeus because the way I look at it, the best case scenario is no. This is the best, second, spy the novel second best spy novel. Or, I've ever this read. is
3: the second best spy novel I've ever read. So I'm assuming we're going to go with somebody else on book number two. It's probably, that's that's probably right. I probably won't be able to top that one. So I, I be different one. Yeah, that. mom. General David <laughs> McGrath's mom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know my my mom still hasn't. She's not going to probably listen to this podcast, it? She hasn't read the book. Oh, you
1: know that
3: I sent it to her. <laughs> my wife that's, doesn't read
1: my stuff, so I don't, I, know if that's, I don't know if
3: that's common. I just thought I'd throw that out there because I I asked her once. I was like, "Mom, do you want it? like It's fine if you don't want to read it. Do you want to read it?" She's like, "I don't think I'm going to read it." <laughs> tough love, tough love. No, and, and she she promotes the heck out of the book. Like she tells all of her friends about it. She's like, "Oh, you should read. You, you know, should read it and tell me about it because I'm it. not going to read she, it." Now. She includes some like third party validation of it, you know, like from <laughs> somewhere else. She's like, oh, this. You know, Petraeus said this or like whatever. Uh, but yeah, she's never she has never opened open the book. I don't think she ever will. She probably knows there's sex scenes in there. She doesn't want to think about oh, that. That's right. That's right. And I and she and I haven't had that conversation yet. But <laughs> I think that's that's probably what's going on. <laughs> All right. Question number two.
0: One of the insider details. I'm stunned that the agency did not redact is the existence of a hot dog vending machine. Um, so I thought you made that up until I read it otherwise. But my question is has is not that. My question is if you had to replace the hot dog vending machine with another vending machine, uh, what what
3: food would it feature? Gosh, Slurpee? Yeah, you know you know it's that's, that's funny. I was going to say Slurpee. I was oh, going to say weird. I I was going to say Coca-Cola Slurpee machine. Um mm-hmm. So not not like a uh, vending sushi. But here's the, pro- here's the problem. Yeah, sushi, a sushi vending machine. I, um, here's the problem is that that vending machine is solving a, a problem at CIA headquarters, which is that by, you know, like early dinner time, like by, by like 4 or 4.30, I'll have to ask one of my friends who's still there, all of the cafeteria is closed. Oh. And, so, and so if you're there... And your writings, like, so when I was an analyst, like, a lot of the work that could go really late is, like, if you're writing a PDB for the president's daily brief, it's, like, running the next morning. Uh, it sounds like a really cool experience, and it kind of is for a few hours during the day, but then you go through nine rounds of, of edits, and it's not fun. And, and at the end, you're just like, why don't you just either kill me or send me home because I don't want to do this anymore. Um But, but if you showed up at like eight that morning and thought you were going to be able to leave at a normal time, your boss might've said, Hey, you're going to write this thing. It's going to go through nine levels of edit. You might not leave until one or two in the morning. And, And so you've shown up without food. And so you're like needing to get some food. So the Slurpee machine wouldn't necessarily solve that problem. So you might need you might need some food. I actually 15. probably would just say a, a normal vending machine would be the <laughs> would, be, would be the answer. You know, that's got like a granola bar in it. Like I just that picture, like,
1: like the back of 7-Eleven just
3: like rolling in <laughs> the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those like really those like rollers. way in the back. Really it hot. looks like it's been I there for like a the hot dog on them. Or, a pizza be, or always wonder how long it's been there. But.
0: Yeah, um, but it's been there for months probably. <laughs> okay, my my final lightning round question um i want to test your abilities as an analyst here and put you on the spot a little bit oh gosh with all with all the resources and built-in advantages at their disposal why did the dallas cowboys still suck
3: <laughs> oh oh it's a great question and you know what in uh, in polite dallas company i pretend to be a cowboys fan but with you guys i i'll drop the charade i um my dad grew up in Cleveland. I've been raised on Cleveland sports. Not not a good... You know how to pick <laughs> them. Right. Uh, Interesting pivot. <laughs> and so I um, I don't pay a lot of attention to the Cowboys, to be honest with you. So okay. if, I, if, if I go to a dinner party or something, I might scroll, like, for some random facts that I could throw out. Uh, but I really am a Cleveland baseball fan. And... Um, you know a sort of sometimes browns fan and i don't i don't care like i don't want you to quote me on this i might this might be one of the things afterwards. no one's gonna watch I, this
1: show so it doesn't matter. tell you to edit
3: this out but i just i just don't really care about the cowboys somewhere my friend
0: colonel michael stanley um of houston uh right now but was in dallas and
3: is a cowboy fan from birth is weeping <laughs> this is after after we're done here i'm going to say hey guys you need to take that out because i can't i have to like go and see people in dallas there, and there's I, certain segments there. that i can't sure Mike will try that. i'm sure Mike yeah.
1: will try. Uh, it you know sometimes it doesn't work out all right <laughs> so let's see if i can ruin your career any more than we already have just now okay so number one if the agency teaches intelligence operators how to pass a polygraph test isn't that kind of self-defeating
3: the well, agency never teaches people how to pass it. polygraph. They don't? What, what are they teaching them then? No, I mean, the, the polygraph, they're not teaching people how to pass a polygraph. <laughs> they're, 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 no. The polygraph, I don't know if I say it in this book, but I mean, it's a tool of psychological coercion that's used, yeah. right? I mean, it, it's very much a way to sort of intimidate people and get them feeling uncomfortable. And so the agency is never really teaching people how to pass it. Um, they they use it as a way to to vet and, and assess people
1: all right uh, fine well that blows my idea right up yeah water. that
3: blows your idea out of the water i'm sorry
1: all right number two as interrogators go why doesn't the cia recruit more mother-in-laws
3: <laughs> god that's a great idea mike
1: <laughs> just
2: seems well i you mean
3: you know. know yeah it is it is pretty logical actually um <laughs> And, and, I mean, look, I, I don't have any real firsthand knowledge of actual interrogation practices or procedures, but, I, I mean, m- my sense from talking with people who have is that, you know, the, the best ones are the kind who sort of convince the person that they're talking to that they're both, you know... Um, in their court, but also potentially a horrible enemy, which I think is is the mother in law approach. You know, and I'm sort of with se- you. Seems but to like, me like it's, a,
1: it's just a that, that just sells itself right there. I, I,
3: I'm I'm with you, but I might do terrible things to you later on. You know, uh, <laughs> yep. so I think I, I I don't know. I think it's a good strategy. I mean, okay, all right. I, although sure, too- this video runs and, and they're vetting his
0: uh his uh, testimony here, I'm sure that will happen. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm definitely gonna lose any remaining clearances i have will be gone
1: <laughs> yeah that's happens a lot meanwhile
0: usually. mike's gonna be uh, offered a job uh, tomorrow. <laughs> that, guy, that
3: guy's got some good idea I
1: so might have a recruiter that. here
3: <laughs> yeah sweet
1: I'm, I'm more of a scopolamine injection kind of guy all right uh, much has been debated in the recent years on the legalities of interrogation techniques <clears throat> where does the cia stand on subjecting a suspected terrorist to a line at the dmv is
3: that too far that would uh i'm trying to, it is cruel i mean it's got to be that, that that's that's cruel punishment yeah, right it, but not unusual um, <laughs> and then un, well cruel but yeah very usual actually so there's the uh, gray line right yeah there's the i you know honestly can't you get most of your dmv stuff done online now i mean yeah. It's I got to make I mean, an
1: appointment for like two weeks out for my kid's permit test. I'm like, really? who else is going? Like, okay. Are we done with COVID or
3: what? Is the excuses now? No. I haven't I haven't been to a DMV in years, actually. Um, yeah, me either. But I don't I don't have kids that are driving, so yeah, that's you're probably in a that's another fun one for you to wait for special version of hell. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. They'd probably be pro it though, because I think, yeah. you know, you'd rather. I mean, I would I would just start talking. If you're like, hey, you can say a bunch of stuff about, you know, you can spill a bunch of secrets, you can stand at and be yeah. line. I would just, I'll give you a few things. Hey, you know, if, of-
1: and your buddies want to hire me. I'm I'm retired already, so I'm good. I I got some more ideas. None of them are good, but I got some ideas.
3: Yeah, are good. We're gonna- he's
0: got ideas though. And not only that, we're going to give your mother-in-law a job at the DMV and combine the two
3: tortures that Mike is... Exactly. Buying. You're going to wait in line next to your mother-in-law for six hours at the DMV. You're just going to Who stand... Who has there. questions? She's going to ask you questions. She has questions. And, and then when you're, when you're done, you're going to be told to come back in another week with you it. You know? You, you didn't bring the right document. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You needed something else.
1: David, this... Is one hell of a book. My um, my copy is on flight 1423, if anyone on Southwest Airlines yesterday would like to forward (laughs) that to me. Appreciate that. Please tell me, did you really leave it in like a seat back on the airline? I would love to say no, I didn't, but that would not be true.
0: (laughs) I've done that before. More than once. More than once. But anyways, this is is a heck of a debut and we cannot wait for, for book number two. Um, we hope you come back and talk to us when that comes out. And yeah. we'll try to, you know, of course, the lightning round might have ruined that chance. But if not, we'll we'd love to have you back. Um, we're going to sell the hell out of this when uh, when we air this this week. Um, so we appreciate you coming on. Thanks, guys. Ton of fun.
1: Really appreciate it. Good times, pal. Here's
0: Cheers. to, uh, here's to a, a long and fruitful writing career, my friend.
1: Cheers. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Here we go. This is the outro for David McCluskey and Damascus Station. Sean, de-bladdered and ready to go. Here we go. In three, two, and meow.
0: Michael, hell of a time. Hell of a time tonight with this wonderful debut book, Damascus Station by David McCluskey. Um, Just really enjoyed the entire conversation. Learned a lot. Laughed
1: a lot. Typical. Great crew reviews episode. As always, everybody, Cheers. Book. folks, you got to read Damascus Station. Very timely and very entertaining. And the guy knows his stuff, it's very obvious. See you next time. Cheers, folks.
2: Mmm.